the army's on the path towards this 21st you know, century army in support of a 21st century national defense strategy with really legacy 20th century sustainment technology. Hello, everyone. I am Captain Justin Command, and welcome to another episode of Battlefield Next, a podcast devoted to the application of law to the future of armed conflict. Today, we have the honor of hosting the 56th Quartermaster General of the United States Army, Brigadier General Michelle Donahue. A graduate of Duke University, General Donahue also holds, holds advanced degrees from Georgetown and the National Defense University. Today, Brigadier General Donahue will talk to us about her varied roles in the sustainment community, a bit about the future of sustainment, and her view of the role of the judge advocate in large-scale combat operations, especially as they pertain to sustainment. Ma'am, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us on Battlefield Next. Uh, we appreciate you making the, the trip down from uh, uh, up from Fort Lee to the Nolan Reading Room here in, in Charlottesville, Virginia. Thanks, Justin. I really appreciate, uh, you know, one, you asking me to uh, to come up here today. But, you know, for all those out there listening today, um, please know that. Uh, so, you know, I have a little bit of experience here with Justin. Uh, he was one of our company commanders in the quartermaster school, as I tell people who knew that the quartermaster school trains all of our paralegals out there. And so I'm just I'm, I'm honored to be here in your presence as well. And as we explore the future of sustainment and uh, and uh, and any other further questions about, you know, what I expect from uh, from the JAG Corps. Well, thanks, ma'am. And, and I always felt like I was an honorary member of the quartermaster corps. So, so I appreciate it. And uh, as we start today, ma'am, really what I'd like to, to start with is. Uh, maybe a little bit of insight of who you are, even before you were Lieutenant Donahue. Who who were you, ma'am, and, and where are you from? So I was the daughter of uh, of an Air Force officer. I um, I moved around quite a bit, lived overseas, spent uh, some formative years out in Malaysia. Was out there kind of my eighth, ninth, tenth grade, and uh, the the uh, the international school system out there. Um, and then uh, my dad was the Air Force attache out there. And then um, we came back to actually to D.C. Uh, he uh, he was immersed into the Spanish language. And then we moved down into Venezuela. And I always say that I had the honor maybe of, of being uh, subjected to Hugo Chavez's first coup attempt down in uh, down in Venezuela back in 1992. But, but what that meant was I then uh, found myself back in D.C. Uh, to kind of finish high school back there. And so I had visions back then of, of going to attend the Air Force Academy. But uh, the the summer before, you know, before we moved down to Venezuela, I uh, I had visited Duke, and so I found, you know, so when I found myself back in Annandale, Virginia, back at this high school, living with family friends, it was kind of March Madness and Duke Kentucky game, and so I watched the kind of that infamous Christian Leitner shot back in 1992. And uh, and so I kind of walked away from that, saw all the Cameron crazies, and said, you know, I think I want to go to Duke. I feel and, like that 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 moment, and, right? Right, that whole moment. Recruit anybody is it, yeah. it would have. And so I so I so I you know called my father and said, uh, Hey, Dad, I'm I'm turning down the Air Force Academy and I'm going to accept this Army ROTC scholarship to go to Duke. And he was a little bit taken aback that the Air Force said to me, Well, if you want to go to Duke, you have 
to be a computer science major, and that was not up my uh, up my alley. So, so I uh, so I accepted that Army ROTC scholarship and uh, found myself at uh, down at Duke University and had an incredible time and still very much in awe of Coach K. Right. So I was, um, you know, he always approached uh, the Cameron Crazies as the sixth man on his team, and so that that you know that that whole entire team is greater than than the sum of all of some of all of its parts. I think he, um, you know, he really looks at all of his players as not individual stars because they are, but really how do I get the best out of a team? And so I took a lot of that away. Um, I was actually reflecting on that. I have a, I have a picture in my office of, of the two of us. I was very fortunate to work for a senior leader that allowed me the opportunity to, who was, who was, who was also very close to uh, Coach K. And so, but on that photo that I have autographed, he, uh, he says, you know, thanks for being on our team, right? That again, that Cameron crazy part that, that, you know, propels Duke to success, but also, you know, the follow your heart, right? And so I've always kind of said, you know, you've got to obviously think with your head, but you have to follow your heart. And so I think that both that teamwork piece, but also uh, just just leading with your heart, I think has been kind of the two formative things that I've kind of taken with me throughout my career so and, and far. Pretty surreal as, as his storied career Absolutely. comes to an end in this Abs- year. It too. does, um, yes. So I hope, I hope Duke beats UVA this year. It, but uh, <laughs> we, we, there could be a storybook <laughs> finished this year, man. So good. we'll see. Yeah, absolutely. So, but in addition to that, right, just from another piece of, you know, who I am, um, I am obviously a dual military spouse, uh, married to a medical service corps officer, uh, you know, met, met, met my husband as a, as a young lieutenant in uh, Europe. Uh, and we have, uh, you know, traveled the world together and really been a part of, um, you know, this Army career together uh, for this, you know, for our entire career so far. And as you as you entered the Army, ma'am, what what was it? Did you know what you wanted to do in the Army? Was that sort of dictated for you or, or, or were you leaning one way or another when you first started out that, that Army career? So I think when I was a cadet, um, you know, I initially went off to Duke thinking I was going to go be a pre-med student and actually got to the point where um, I ended up with an ed delay as part of the accessions piece with a with a with a medical service corps as kind of my backup plan and I went home that that um, that uh, so my parents were still in Venezuela at that point in time and so went home uh, my senior year uh, kind of came back from that and thought uh, wow I don't I I'm not sure I really want to be a doctor. And I, you know, it's kind of that, that, that long career path out there with residency and, and years of med school. So I actually came back and begged then to, uh, to branch transfer. And the way I looked at that was from a quartermaster perspective, it was really the only branch at the time back in 1992 that was sort of equal opportunities to all members of the Corps. And, uh, you know, because most, um, even in being an ordinance lieutenant at the time, you couldn't be far forward inside of um, inside of a uh, maneuver battalion at the time when they had support platoons as as a female. And so so that's really honestly why, one, I decided not, I didn't want to be a doctor, and two, um, that I sort of wanted to, to be able to kind of come in with uh, with equal opportunities. Right, and, and and throughout that career, are, are there some assignments that that you believe have have shaped you along the way, and 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 then uh, relatedly, are there some assignments that were particularly challenging for you, ma'am? Yeah, so I mean, I think I've had this really, you know, in some cases, a very storied career, right? Um, I've been able to serve at really tactical, operational, strategic levels. Um, had the opportunity very early on to apply uh, for the JCS internship program, which then allowed me, after company command, to go off 
to Georgetown uh, to uh, to basically receive a you know really undertake a policy management study there, and then to serve on the joint staff as well as the Army staff. Uh, on the joint staff, was able to uh, serve inside of the chairman's office for uh, legislative affairs, which really just took a ton of leadership lessons away from that experience. I was there at the time when Secretary or uh, Secretary Rumsfeld was sort of on his way out, and Secretary Gates came in. It was a very interesting dynamic in Congress at the time. So just really learned a lot from that, and then uh, went down into the Army staff to work for then General Dunwoody uh, when she was the Army G four. Again, a very tremendous leadership opportunity to work for her and really to be inside of her. Her SIG to see, you know, just really how, you know, how does a senior leader think? From there, I went off to uh, kind of, you know, do kind of normal KD major opportunities, you know, battalion SPO, battalion XO. Uh, and then I found myself back in the Pentagon. I always say, you know, most people sort of, stay, you know, shy, shy away from the Pentagon. I probably have more Pentagon tours than most people. But uh, I, I found myself and in, in back in, again, in that opportunity to go work for another senior leader. And so I was very fortunate uh, to go work for General Dempsey when he was the 37th chief of staff of the Army and then as when he was the 18th chairman. And I say that to me was probably one of the most formative experiences that I had because it was really inside of a leadership laboratory. I mean, just watching him interact all day long with people, with foreign dignitaries, with interagency personnel. And it just, it really, and then traveling the world with uh, with both he and his wife uh, was just, um, it was such a joy just to watch how a senior leader is able to solicit, you know, those nuggets of information that he needs at that tactical level to help inform him at the, at, at the strategic level. And, and maybe a case of uh, serendipity, ma'am, but I just finished reading, and, and, and I promise you this was not uh, any type of brown nosing, but I just finished reading No Time for spectators. Yeah. Uh, and, and sure enough, uh, <laughs> I, I see a, a call out to a then major uh, Michelle yeah. Donahue. And, and, yeah. and, and uh, maybe, uh, uh, at least from his perspective, a, a, a potentially difficult position that you found yourself in. Yeah. And, and, and wondering if you could share kind of with our listeners um, both the, that yeah. challenge and the leadership lessons that you imparted on General Dempsey and, 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 and what he imparted back to you, man. So it was interesting. I, you know, so I was this uh, kind of a unique role and a special assistant role to him and uh, and to his wife as well, right? And so, uh, you know, uh, really the military family role perspective. But I also had the opportunity. It's funny. I was I was always the one that that had the opportunity to give him all the bad news. And so some of the time it was the bad news from from our lawyers there on the joint staff. And so we'd always, always do the lawyers, always the lawyers, right? And so. It. Um, but as a, uh, you know, as the young major, you know, junior lieutenant colonel, having to staff all of his trips from a, from a legal perspective and making sure that all of his spouse travel was coordinated and all those were had, you know, the appropriate legal reviews to include all of his quarters, dinners and anything that he hosted. And so, you know, so every time I would walk into his office, it was either, all right, how can we not get to yesterday in some, in some, you know, in some something he wanted to accomplish or some sort of in-state that he wanted to get after or is or also even from spouse perspective as you know as we were tackling really challenging military family issues and so at the time um, you know this was the start of sequestration and we had just been out on the road and a lot of feedback from spouses about military child care and uh, and so I knew that he was at um, that he was going to host a tank and that they were really uh, in sort of this you know cutting of uh, programs for military families. And so, um, you know, he had made the promise to his spouse, which helped me, I think, that he was going to make sure that uh, that the child care centers uh, were not cut. 
And so um, I'd gotten wind that the uh, I think the J8 on the Joint Staff was uh, was going to propose that that was one of the cuts that they made. And so I so I went in and and very patiently asked to you know sort of speak my mind and uh, and to let him know that you know that this was important to military families and that and that I really felt like one he had told his spouse and so I wasn't going to be the one to go back and tell her that <laughs> that he was going to cut this program, but that uh, but that at the end of the day that I felt that this was something that he needed to fall his you know he needed to fall on his sword for. And so it was I yeah, I was kind of in, standing in front of his, you know, MacArthur desk and and sort of, you know, sir, you have to address this problem set and you can't walk away from this problem. And so and so in the book, he, you know, it was, it was interesting when he when when he sent me an advanced copy of the book. And I can tell you, I, you know, I read that book one night, um, you know, devoured the whole thing. But I I was there probably late, you know, late that night. I mean, I had, like tears in my eyes, but, you know, late, late that night. And I got to that section and all I did was cry. Because it was just, I was like, oh my God, I, you know, I don't think I ever really truly understood that I had such that impact on him. But he looks at that as, you know, I mean, you know, clearly that was, you know, character forming, but also, um, you know, definitely, uh, definitely, a, a, you know, a, a formative experience in both of our both of our relationships. But uh, but again, he is just a, an incredible man, and um, and uh, I think of them as parents, and uh, they are really. Um, they are uh, definitely just inspiring leaders. And still today, I mean, he continues to give back. Yeah. Yeah. So something, something special, man, when you can see impact flow both ways, Absolutely. right? And it's not yeah. dependent on rank or, or grade. And, and, yeah. and you see true, actual, humble impact just flow. Um, can I can I shift to, 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 to today, today? Your yeah. role as the, the quartermaster commandant, quartermaster general. Um, and And... What it is you do in that role, and yeah. and and also the role of of the quartermaster corps as a whole. So most people don't know. So 16 June 1775. Um, you know, there's there's a couple of branches that were formed on 16 June. Um, you know, some of those things that uh, that uh, that we needed, right? So the finance corps, the AG corps, the quartermaster corps, right? And so you need obviously supplies um, and the engineer corps. So those are really the four, besides infantry, as obviously being the oldest, but those four branches. So we always kind of say, well, we're the clearly you needed supplies. So we were the we were you know people were worried about their stomachs and needing food and and all those things. So we we always sort of say we're the second oldest branch out there, but you could probably argue like, you know, we're tied for second, right? But um, but but you know, but we have we we've answered that call from 246 years to uh, to provide uh, aerial delivery, petroleum and water supply, mortuary affairs, and uh, subsistence, uh, and really in every war conflict and campaign. Uh, and so I'm just you know I'm proud to uh, obviously be um, the quartermaster general, but just to ensure that from a from a sustainment perspective that we can continue to you know deliver uh, that operational reach for for the warfighter. But we also have the responsibility just for capability development, the integration of doctrine, for structure, leader development, for example, you know, and and then also the development of, the, of all the material solutions for the corps. How has this assignment varied or? How has this been a different assignment from some of your other, maybe more traditional or even some of those assignments at the Pentagon? Has, has this one been more or less of a challenge for you? So I think um, I think I was really fortunate when I when I came out of Sustainment Brigade Command in Europe from the 16th Sustainment Brigade over there, um, I had the opportunity to go back into the Army G8 and be a hardware division chief up in up in G8 Force Development. Um, I think what that allowed me, and by the way, I had no clue what I was doing when I came in there. I I would say I probably learned more in that year about the Army, about our acquisition programs, about how the entire assault you know, really the acquisition enterprise works. I, again, I learned more in that year um, than 
probably the last 10 years, right? Because it was just different, it was different material, right? Different, just kind of a different, you know, it was the first time I'd really been exposed to a lot of that stuff. And so, but when I... I came down from when I came down from you know to Cascom from that job. General Fogg at the time thought, "Wow, I'm going to take your experience up there because now you you know as we say now you know where all the the bodies are buried, so to speak, right? You know where you know you know where all of this equipment is funded, how it's funded. You know all of the material programmatics with each of those material programs." And so I'm going to carry that on to make sure that we remain synchronized um, and that you can continue to drive and push all of those initiatives so that we really can make sure that uh, we deliver on what was funded and what had been previously funded and what we're continuing to fund now. And shifting a bit now to the, to the, the future of sustainment, the future of the Quartermaster Corps, what, what do you envision are, are the near-term challenges and the near-term opportunities for for your core man um so i think uh you know we always say the the speed of supported you know or the speed of um, support has to really catch up to the speed of the supported right and so you know we are putting all these financial investments and programmatic investments into really the army's 31 plus 4 programs um those are really centered around the cross-functional teams that were stood up by army futures command I think the problem with that is, is that you are on the path or the Army's on the path towards this 21st you know, century Army in support of a 21st century national defense strategy with really legacy 20th century sustainment technology. And so I think we have to make sure that the investments that we need for, whether it's the Waypoint Force, as the Army is kind of creating this Waypoint Force of 2028, 2029, and then this Aimpoint Force that AFC is uh, creating for 2035, that we make sure that that we're thinking differently about how we sustain that future fight. And so whether it's large-scale combat operations or whether it's in a multi-domain or a joint all-domain environment, making sure that, you know, we have put investments into artificial intelligence and machine learning and that we have, you know, UAS and robotics capability that can, that can really, you know, you know, I mean, we can, we can mitigate uh, the gaps between longer lines of communications, more frequent uh, displacement opportunities that formations are going to, I mean, we're going to have to be on the move. So how do you ensure that you can sustain a formation on the move with 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 just thinking differently, um, you know, we've got to put some. You know, we definitely have to start thinking about operational energy environment, and you know, obviously climate change is a big one out there too. But but you know, but how do you uh, you know how do we sort of focus on the electrification efforts of vehicles and thinking differently just about energy? Um, you know, we're working on a project right now with DARPA. Well, really, DARPA is working on a project, and we're just we're we're putting a lot of big bets into some water technology that they're working on where, you know, we could in theory eliminate, you know, the legacy water buffaloes and hippo distribution based off of the molecular technology that they're working on, which is really, I mean, think of, you know, I mean, for me, it's, I mean, it's really a game-changing world technology, right? Where you could you know, kind of have a canteen that has molecular structure inside of that canteen that's magically creating water for you to drink. I mean, think about what that would do just from an NGO perspective down in Africa. Um, but from, for us, 
I mean, it would it, it'll totally change how we distribute water. And then, really, from a from a warfighter perspective, how do you how do you enable them at the at the point of need? How do we think about how we deliver food differently? I mean, is that 3D food printing. I mean, I always joke about the Israelis. They're they're already printing, you know, steaks, right? So like, so how do you get to the point where you can take, you know, the molecular biology and you can think differently about how you sustain that warfighter at the tactical edge? So those are some of the things that you know we have to we have to continue to work with Army Futures Command as they, you know, pour investments and S and T dollars into those labs. Um, but then, what programs do we see as you know coming over into the acquisition realm? Uh, that 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 we need to then fund, ma'am. Do you see that? That's sort of some of the uh, I guess future capabilities and, and and ways to support a a force of twenty twenty eight or twenty thirty five and in a in multi domain operations. But do you see any of that technology trickling down to the training mission at Fort Lee, or does the training mission and the basics of that mission stay relatively? the same because the the basics are the basics are the basics. I mean, you know, in terms of MDO and LISCO, it's making sure that, you know, from a from an AIT perspective that we're that we're training the basics. They understand, they understand the mechanics of their equipment, they understand and they and they are truly ready to operate all of the pieces of equipment that they're trained on really on, you know, day one of integration. They may need other things that they have to work on like driver's training and, you know, and and you know other things at that first unit of assignment, but but they are trained on the basics and I I don't see that changing. I do see changes at you know at, at uh, ALC and SLC as we think differently about one the delivery um, of the education, but also trying to challenge NCOs to be better integrated with our staffs um, so that, you know, they're fully prepared to be able to do MDMP. I mean, I used to, I mean, I used to challenge our non-commissioned officers in Europe because, because of, because of what we had to sustain across the entire European continent. I couldn't rely on single MOSs to be able, just to be SMEs in that experience. They had to be, they had to cross train. And so from a quartermaster perspective, we're actually working on a, on a, on a, uh, on a merger actually at the E8 level right now, where I kind of get after a multifunctional quartermaster uh, non-commissioned officer. Uh, and so I think, I, so I do see a lot of changes in how we, um, you know, empower our non-commissioned officers and to our warrant officers as well, really making sure they're grounded inside of that technical expertise. So I think some changes back at the schoolhouse, um, but I think we always make sure that at least on the modernization side for the material, that that's integrated into what the future design of that POI is. And Outside of the uh, the quartermaster corps, outside of the sustainment world, ma'am, um, I want to talk a little bit about judge advocates. Uh, how you view, I guess, uh, generally, uh, how you have viewed the role of the judge advocate in in your various echelons of, of command, and has that changed or evolved throughout your career? Uh, you know, we always often joke in the JAG corps that that, that usually uh, more junior uh, commanders don't really like uh, seeing their lawyers, and and hopefully. As they become more senior, they're 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 more willing to engage and see a little bit more of the value in their JAs. But but what's the experience been like for you, ma'am? So I think so I always look back and I think um, you know as a battalion commander, um, I was really really fortunate. I had a uh, very well disciplined formation. Um, I know that's sort of maybe hard to believe, <laughs> uh, but I had uh, you know and I had a. a I had an incredible relationship with our BGA, um, and uh, and uh, you know I still uh, I still have comps with both with my trial counsel as well as with my BGA from when I was battalion commander. But I don't know that I had a ton of interaction versus when I look back as being a sustainment brigade commander and how much interaction my 
battalion commanders had with our BGA team. Um, I think maybe the difference in Europe is that we were we were working more of both, whether it's military justice or in the, in both sides of military justice and operational law. But you know, as I always joke with you know. My great Sam Beckett quote, right? Ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again, fail again, fail better. And, uh, you know, that failed better approach became kind of my, our mantra for 16th Sabre Brigade because, you know, boy, soldiers can do some crazy things, right? And especially over in Europe, you know, I, you know, I remember my first week in the command and I had, uh, had soldiers that decided, you know, the, the, there's there's like one turn up between you go from Poland into uh, Lithuania and it's like if you go left you go into the Swaki Gap and into Lithuania and if you go right you go into Belarus right and I remember like getting a frantic call that was like uh, you have some soldiers that are being held up by some Belarusian <laughs> uh, guards and I was like this is not good so I think in Europe you know from my BGA's perspective is you know they were I found they really had to be integrated very very closely. Obviously, all of our MDMP exercises, but making sure they understood the concept of support, that they understood where the friction was going to be, um, and they understood what was happening at the USRA level so that they could kind of help me see around the corners there for where we had to start to potentially mitigate, right? So whether it was engaging, you know, through the embassy like working with the legal uh, team back at the embassy to help mitigate, hey, I really need the ambassador to make this phone call so that I can get this ammunition through Austria to be able to get there so that I don't have an exercise with our Romania partners, you know, sort of not happen. And so um, and so I just think that there was, there was, at least over there, I really felt that there was this really close nexus between the two. Yeah, that's, that's an important point I think you make, ma'am, is that uh, I'm sure that there are times where sustainers see themselves as, as, as serving a client, and, and attorneys always see themselves as serving some client. But it's it's important what you mentioned of, of attorneys knowing the client they're serving. A, a, a BJA's role in a brigade combat team might, might be different than the BJA's role in a sustainment brigade, and you have to know what your client wants in order to best serve Absolutely. the client. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I also think too. I mean, it's um, you know, I think just that that trust factor too, right? I mean, um, you know, I had two just two incredible BJs when I was over there. Very lucky. I always say I was. I'm sort of you know maybe I have like this you know sort of blessed, right? Um, but I always end up with just these incredible teams. Um, and uh, and and but you know, but I was really able to work through a lot of those problem sets with them, um, and really you know from a trust factor, but. But also, I think they knew where my head was, and getting to know, in both of us, getting to know each other, uh, so that so that they knew the questions I was going to ask. I'm, you know, I like to sort of talk through problem sets. Sometimes that scares people, um, but I think you know, really working through, looking at the end game, try to work yourself backwards, um, you know, figuring out the multiple coas that you could, um, you know, approach for many different problems, whether it's on the op law side or or whether it's on the MJ side. Um, and 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 thinking through those so that you don't just sort of stumble your way through and then and then you find yourself having to make decisions that you don't want to make because you really didn't because you didn't think through the end state and you know and, and in their case they weren't involved in MBMP and so you end up finding yourselves I mean they were but you know what I mean but if they weren't then you find yourselves in a predicament that you really can't get yourself out of um, and so I think that just that integration and uh, you know and 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 and, and I think too um, you know. They both had different skill sets, different backgrounds, but I think understanding who they needed to call 
uh, over there that they knew they could reach up to 21st TSC. They knew they could reach out to 173rd to, you know, and there was this network of BJAs, but then even up into the USERA structure as well. And, you know, all the way up to where you knew from the USERA, you know, uh, you know, SJ at the time, um, you know, what John Cavoli was even thinking about. And so, you know, and knew that you could, you know, you know, where could you take a little bit of risk to be able to meet commander's intent? Uh, and so I think that was really powerful too, uh, just that network of networks approach. And and is there any other, uh, I guess you'd say, um, character traits or something that you, you, you want to see in your, in your JA? Are there other personality traits or character traits that you say are, are must-haves? Obviously, you know, you all are competent, right? Um, you know, you, you, I think it's, you know, providing candor, providing honest assessments. I would sort of stress that it, even as young lieutenants, like, don't be afraid. It's kind of like that moment with General Dempsey, right? Being able to come in and not be intimidated by the rank and being able to say, hey, this is, you know, here, here are your left, right limits. I can help you get to yes, but understand left, right, you got to stay inside of this, you know, this parameter, just not really being intimidated, but, you know, quick, obviously all quick studies, but, um, you know, just, I mean, I would, I don't know, I mean, it's probably caught me off guard there for a minute, but uh, just because I've been so blessed by such great lawyers, right? I, uh, I don't know what other traits out there that I, that I want out of them because they were all, they were all fabulous. Um, I, you know, just being inquisitive, uh, again, um, being candid, honest. Um, you know, I was asked a question yesterday, but, and I know this is kind of a random parallel, but, you know, by a, by a lieutenant first, you know, a, a, a bullet graduate or a soon to be bullet graduate who's a former non-commissioned officer. And, you know, how do you, how do you sort of bridge that divide between the two? And, and I think you have to go in as a young, even as a young trial counsel, you know, you, you don't know a lot, go spend time with a company commander, go live that, go, you know, go, 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 go walk a day in that company commander's shoes, right? Understand back to your client, right? How does your client operate? I mean, being willing to, you know, get out of your comfort zone um, is probably, is probably helpful. Well, ma'am, thank you. Uh, this, this has been awesome. And, and, and I really sincerely appreciate you um, sharing with us uh, not only your lessons learned from, from your career, um, but your lessons for the future force and, and, and especially your lessons for, for judge advocates, because um, it, it is uh, absolutely vital for us to get the perspective of, of those that we serve uh, within the Army. And so we sincerely appreciate you coming down today, ma'am. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thanks, Best ma'am. of luck to you, too. Thank you. Thanks. Interested in providing material to the JAG Corps' Future Concepts Directorate? Reach out to us via Twitter or LinkedIn at JAGFCD, or visit our website at tjaglix.army.mil forward slash FCD. That's tjaglcs.army.mil forward slash FCD. Always on the lookout for the next guest, topic, or discussion. As always, the views expressed on the podcast are the views of the participants and do not necessarily represent those of the Judge Advocate General's Legal Center and School, the United States Army, the Department of Defense, or any other agency of the United States government. Reference 
in this podcast to any specific commercial product, process, or service, or the use of any trade, firm, or corporation name is for the information and convenience of the public and does not constitute endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the Department of Defense. For the JAG Corps' Future Concepts Directorate, I am Captain Justin Command. Thanks for joining us on Battlefield Next. Battlefield Next.